It is a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day morning to be able to bring you the preaching of God's Word. And so uh, to that end, uh, if you would please uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 23 through 31. So Acts chapter 28. And we'll start reading in verse 23. So let's uh, give attention to the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 23. Hear now the word of God. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from uh, both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to you, to the Gentiles, they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer, and then we'll hear the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give unto us ears to hear and eyes to see that you would remove the clouds of sin, that you would remove the clouds of doubt, that you would uh, build up our faith, that we would have a robust and assured trust in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Glorify yourself now, we pray. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, uh, we looked at the first commandment, and so what I want to do is I want to continue looking at the first commandment, But I want to do so from the vantage point of this last closing passage from the book of Acts, which at first glance may not seem immediately to connect to the first commandment. But as we dig deeper into it, I'm hoping that we'll be able to perceive this connection. Now, in general, we can see in the book of Acts that it's a book filled with a lot of drama as we see the early days of the church as it begins to unfold and spread throughout the Mediterranean world. We see the exciting conversion of Saul, the Pharisee, as he becomes Paul the Apostle. He was once the lion who was wanting to tear apart the church of Jesus Christ And now he has become uh, the ferocious lamb, if you will, the Apostle Paul, willing to lay down his life for the very people that whom he once sought to put to death. And in his dramatic ministry, we see his imprisonment, his appeal to Caesar, and of course, his arduous, shipwrecked-laden journey uh, to Rome. 
But the book of Acts, of course, ends on what we might at first think is something of a serene note, as Paul was preaching to his fellow Jews as he was under house arrest. We read in verse 23, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to them uh, to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so here we see it seems as if the dangers have abated. Uh, it seems as if Paul is safely in, in, in the city here as he is preaching to the Jews. He is able to have large audiences come to him as he sought to persuade them to embrace the gospel of Jesus, as he taught them from the law of Moses and from the Old Testament prophets. But we see the uh, the, the ugly head of unbelief once again rearing its head in verse 24, as Luke tells us that some believed while others disbelieved, he says. Others disbelieved. And then we see a rather ominous note of judgment. It appears beginning in verses 25 and following when we read, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What is it that he said? Why was it so offensive to them? Why was it that this, these were the words that sealed the coffin shut, so to speak, on the disbelief of some of the Jews who listened? He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So Paul ends at least on a note of judgment here, against his fellow Jews for their unbelief. And what we might not recognize is that these words are rooted, at least in part, to the first commandment, that we shall have no other gods before us. As to how exactly this commandment connects to the events here that transpire with Paul's evangelization of the Jews will become evident but first, what I want to do is I want to state the, the chief point that Paul makes here. And in stating the thesis, if you will, I think it'll become evident as to how it's connected to the first commandment. And then we can fill in a lot of the information to kind of give ourselves a full-orbed picture as to what Paul is saying and why does he quote these words from Isaiah the prophet, be they ever seeing, they will never see, be they ever hearing, they will never hear. And the thesis is this. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. Whatever it is that you worship, that is what you will become like. If you worship the one true living God, then you will become like the one true living God. If you worship a false God, a false, uh, you know, a deity, uh, an idol of your own making, whatever it may be, then you will become 
like that idol that you worship. And so that's the main point that we have to keep before us. And in order to understand more fully what it is that Paul is saying here, first, we want to look into what Paul has to say that are embedded in his words of judgment. Why does he quote Isaiah and what's the significance of it? Why does he say the things that he does? And then secondly, we want to see how Paul's words connect to our own worship, the things that we worship, ideally God himself, and to our own sanctification, uh, how it connects to our own transformation into the image of the one true living God. So let's give thought first to Paul's words of judgment. As I said, Paul's judgment uh, comes from the book of Isaiah, particularly in the sixth chapter. You can perhaps remember those amazing events that transpired there in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet went to the temple for what was for all intents and purposes an ordinary day of worship. That is, that's not to say that worshiping God is an ordinary thing. But in other words, he went to the temple expecting the usual things to happen. And it was going to be ordinary in that sense, that he would offer the sacrifices, that he would undoubtedly pray and sing to the Lord, that he would uh, bow his heart and that he would make God the sole object of his love, of his devotion. And yet, what is it that happened that day is that the pre-incarnate Christ unfurled his glory before him so much so that the train of his robe filled the temple. It's just merely, if you will, the hem of the bottom of his robe. And Isaiah was overwhelmed. He was so overwhelmed that he said in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here, it was a very extraordinary day of worship for him. Because there, God revealed himself in Christ to Isaiah. And Isaiah recognized how unworthy he was. And so it's on the heels of this revelation. And not only of this revelation, but as, uh, as, as Christ sent the seraphim to extend the hot coals from the altar to purge Isaiah of his sin and to equip him to carry out his prophetic ministry, his prophetic ministry to his fellow Israelites, that the the pre-incarnate Christ issued forth this call, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah responds in verses 8 and following, Here I am, send me. And so the pre-incarnate Christ responds to him and he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Think about the ups and downs of Isaiah's call. I mean, it must have been one of the most amazing events in his entire life, if not the pinnacle event of his life. As he goes to the temple and he stands in the presence, the glorious presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. 
And thinking that he was undone, thinking that it was his doom, Christ extended unto him mercy and forgiveness and cleansed him of his sins. Yet further reason to fill his heart with joy and thanksgiving and worship and praise. And then unthinkable of unthinkable things, Christ issues a call, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me, I'm ready. The high of highs. And then followed by the low of lows, Isaiah, I'm going to send you, but your ministry is going to be a ministry of judgment. A ministry of judgment. I suspect that seminary corridors would be empty if we told prospective students, well, it looks like God's calling you to a ministry of judgment. What do you mean? Well, when you preach, not only are people not going to like what you say, they might revile you. They may persecute you. Well, don't you mean that, don't don't I get to preach the good news? Well, it would be good news. It's just that they're going to reject it. So it's going to be bad news. It's going to be judgment. I give unto you a ministry of doom. Naturally. Isaiah answers willingly. He says, okay, but he says, how long? So I think he immediately recognized the the Mount Everest of the task that was before him. How long, O Lord? And the Lord responded, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What a heavy burden. Yours is a message of judgment. Yours is a message of condemnation. Now, the question is, is why? Well, remember, Isaiah is a prophet who is called to prophesy, among other things, the impending exile that is about to come upon Israel, that God is about to take his people away into captivity. So Isaiah is preparing them for this judgment of God. But why is it that God would send his prophet to preach the gospel, but that it would be a message of condemnation and judgment. Why is it that the Israelites would be able to see, but not really, that they would hear, but not really? Why does the prophet and why does God focus upon hearing and seeing and how is this connected with worship? Why is it that in spite of their sight, in spite of their ability to hear, that they would nevertheless be deaf to the word of God, that they would be blind to the word of God? Well, because we may not realize it, but here, as the pre-incarnate Christ speaks these words to Isaiah... He's quoting the psalmist. Well, he's quoting himself. (laughs) And the psalmist also happened to record these words as well, to be clear. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, verses 4 and following. Listen to this and notice how it's connected to idolatry and to worship. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Now listen to this. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You see, the psalmist says, you fashion an idol, whether it's out of gold or silver, it need not matter. And you fashion this idol so that it has a mouth, but the idol does not speak. You fashion the idol so that it has ears, but it cannot hear. You fashion the idol so that it has eyes, but this idol cannot see. It has hands, but cannot feel. It has feet, but it cannot walk. It has a mouth, but cannot speak. And then you bow down and worship it. And the psalmist says, if you bow down and worship an idol, you will become just like it. You will become unfeeling. You will be unable to speak intelligently. Because what foolishness is it to bow down to a block of wood and to utter words of praise to something that you yourself just made? What foolishness pours forth from your mouth? But most importantly, and here is why the pre-incarnate Christ picks up these very words of the psalmist and he utters them unto Isaiah to bolster him in his, in his prophetic ministry, is to say... Long story short, the Israelites have engaged in idolatry. They are, they are and have become like the idols that they worship. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. And this is why I am sending you, Isaiah the prophet, to execute this ministry of condemnation, this prophetic ministry of judgment. Again, going back to last week's uh, sermon on uh, question 95 of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Putting your trust in anything else that where that trust belongs is exclusively to the one true living God and taking that trust and placing it in anything else, any other person, any other thing, any other object, any other possession. Those who become like them, those who make them become like them, so do all who put their trust in them. You will become whatever you trust. You will become just like it. You know, one of the things that my, um, I can remember from my days in college, I don't remember much of my college education, uh, but my, for, for my first year, I was a computer information sciences major. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, until I got into the third week of calculus, and I was like, yeah, sorry, Kevin, I just, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I was just like, oh, man, this is tough. And I, I, you know, after a 40, a 40, and a 30, I was like, ah, this is not for me. But one of the things that I do remember from that first year is a principle that I learned in one of my first coding classes. 
That's another reason why I can't do computers. I looked at a computer program that I had to write for an exam for three hours, and it wouldn't work until I finally figured out after three hours it was one misplaced comma. I'm like, that does it. I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) I can't deal with this. But one of the things I do remember is the principle of Geigo. Garbage in, garbage out. They say if you write crummy code, you put garbage into the computer, you're going to get crummy programs. It has to be quality coding that goes into the computer. The computer will only do the things that you tell it to do. It's that way with worship. You worship garbage, you're putting garbage into your system, you're going to get garbage out. It's the same thing. With dieting, you are what you eat. I'm sure you've heard that phrase on more than one occasion. You eat nothing but bacon and Twinkies, you're probably going to start taking on the characteristics of a pig. I'm just guessing. I mean, an occasional Twinkie and bacon, that's all right. That's, That's good, right? That's a blessing. But if that's all you eat, that's going to be a huge problem. This equally applies to worship. Who, what, who or what do we worship? Tell me who you spend your time with and I'll tell you who you are. Which brings us to our second point, which is worship and sanctification. If we understand the significance of Isaiah's judgment... Eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing, and then how Paul uses them as he was confronted with unbelief among his fellow Jews as he set forth with them, to them the, the teachings of the gospel, who Christ is, not only from the law but from the prophets, but yet they hardened their hearts and they refused to believe. He was saying, you refuse to believe because of your idolatry and well did the Holy Spirit say of you. Be you ever seeing, but never seeing, and ever hearing, but never hearing. And so he delivers these messages, this message of judgment against them. It's because they were engaged in idolatry. They refused to worship the one true living God. And so here, I want you to see in in, in the terms of what Paul is saying, the negative side of the equation, if you engage in idolatry you will resemble and become like the idol that you worship. That's the negative side of the equation. But I want to set before you the positive side of this equation. Because Paul is also implicitly speaking of this. Think of Moses' transformation as he was atop Sinai in the presence of God. Moses spent 40-some days up at the top of Sinai as he interacted with God, as he beheld his glory. Remember, he said, I want to behold your glory. And so God told him, no one can look upon me and live, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And he hid him in the cleft of the rock. And as God's glory passed by, and Moses merely saw the hindquarters, it says in the Hebrew, just merely the hind part of God, There's a sense in which it was an overwhelming pouring forth of God's glory upon Moses. So much so that Moses simply being in the presence of God 
caused him to change. Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. You learn a little bit of this principle anytime you stand outside in the sun for too long without sunscreen as you get sunburned. Well, there's a sense in which Moses stood in the glory of the triune God and he came away glowing with the glory of God. Talk about the supreme sunburn, but it wasn't sunburn. It was just simply by being in the presence of God, he reflected back God's glory. So much so that the people looked upon him and were frightened to death. And this required Moses to put a veil over his face and to cover his face so that the people would be unafraid of interacting with him. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this whole transformation of Moses and then how he connects it to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and following, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze upon Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Notice what he's saying here is he's saying that the glory that glowed from Moses' face was only temporary. Moreover, the glory that shone from Moses' face was ultimately one that was associated with the condemnation of the law. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, Paul writes, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more, will what is permanent have glory? He's saying, look, Moses glowed with this ministry of condemnation. Now he's saying, how much more shall we behold the glory of Christ in The gospel in the ministry, not of condemnation, but in the ministry of reconciliation, not in the ministry of judgment as Moses had it, but in the ministry of redemption as Jesus has it. His is a passing glory. Jesus's glory is everlasting and unending. And so he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, he says, yes, at first, Moses covered his face so that the Israelites wouldn't be scared. But then Moses continued to cover his face because he knew that the glory was fading and he didn't want the people to know that the glory was fading. And so he continued to cover his face. He says, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now listen to how Paul describes the unveiling of the glory of Christ in the gospel and how it rebounds to us. Now, if the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What Paul is saying is that in the gospel, the veil of our unbelief is removed And in the gospel, we behold the glory of Christ. And in so beholding that glory, God transforms us into the glorious image of Christ as we behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. To put it in the simplest of terms, again, you become what you worship. If you worship an idol, you become deaf, dumb, and blind like the idol If you worship the one true living God as he has revealed himself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then God will transform you into the glorious image of Christ. Or to put it in the words of James chapter 4 verse 8, if you draw nigh unto God, he will draw nigh unto you. So what lies implicit in the first commandment And what lies implicit in Paul's words of judgment against his fellow unbelieving Jews is the call to draw nigh unto God and to worship him and to worship him only. And if we draw nigh to him unto Christ, then we will become like Christ simply by being in his presence. Just as Moses stood and was transformed into the glorious uh, presence of God, so too we, by spending time in the presence of our Savior through the means of grace, it is by that time spent with Christ that Christ will transform us into his image. Whether you spend time with Christ in prayer, whether you spend time with Christ in the reading of his word, whether you spend time with Christ in gathered corporate worship, whether you spend time with Christ meditating upon his word. This is where we have to ask ourselves, with whom do we spend our time? What kind of energy do we expend in our interests? What are our interests? You know, I can say this now because they're not here. <laughs> but my, 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 both of my sons have declared that they want to become independently wealthy. <laughs> and I say to them, well, you know, God bless you if you can. I said, but I always challenge them this way. And I say, what are you spending your heart's desire Upon What are your chief interests in life? Are you pursuing wealth for the sake of wealth? Or are you pursuing wealth so that you can underwrite the ministry of the church? So that you can give most of what you make away to the church? How many of us know all 14 teams of the SEC? I don't. 
How many of us know the statistics of all sorts of, you know, players and and teams and who's ahead in the national polls? And if you prick our finger, we bleed SEC. But if you prick our finger and ask us about Christ, it's somewhat dry. I'm not saying that we can't have our diversions, our interests, our hobbies, uh, the sports that we enjoy watching. But if I can put the question this way, what do we worship? Who do we worship? Who do we spend our time with? Do we bathe ourselves daily in the word of God? We eat on a regular basis. Do we consume the manna from heaven on a daily basis? Like Moses spending time in the presence of God, do we spend time in the presence of Christ through the means of grace so that when we walk out into public, people can sense the presence of Christ from us? And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beloved in Christ, may God's grace in Christ pull us in closer to our Savior, that we, he would fill our hearts with a zeal and passion to worship him and to worship him alone, and that in so doing, we would become what we worship. And in this case, we would become more like Christ, and that we would look askance at all of the idols that this world has to offer, and that we would smile because we would say we have no interest in them whatsoever because we are so captivated with our love and zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have delivered us from idolatry. We are grateful that you have delivered us from Satan, sin, and death. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with a zeal, passion, and desire for Christ and for Christ alone. That you would make us hungry for his presence that you would make us thirsty for the outpouring of the Spirit. And in so giving us his word and in giving us your Spirit, that you would quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. That we would look upon all of the delicacies that the world has to offer and that we would look away because of a lack of interest and a lack of hunger because we are so sated in Christ. We pray, O Lord, indeed, that you would make us like Christ, that we would put aside our sinful desires, that we would take ourselves off the throne of our hearts as we so regularly try to seat ourselves there, and that we would leave Christ rightly seated upon this throne. We pray, Lord, that you would do so and in the process conform us to the image of Christ, that we would exude in your glory, that we would be, uh, that you would prick our fingers and holiness would come out because of your mercy in Christ. We pray that in this way you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.